take a network break. Enjoy a virtual donut as we analyze and comment on this week's IT news. We're sponsored today by Path Solutions. Ever had a user complain about a problem, yet your network monitoring system says everything's fine? That means your monitoring system doesn't look deep or broad enough to know what's really going on. Want to know what's missing? We'll tell you more at the break. And join us after the news for a Tech Bytes interview with sponsor Glueware. We're going to discuss automating cloud networks, in particular how a Glueware customer combined Glueware and Terraform to stand up infrastructure in AWS. I always love those customer stories. Yes, so it's an interesting story, this one, because we did uh, get into how some of the customers are using the Glueware and the Terraform, how they had a, a situation, and then Glueware came along and said, why don't we just automate that? And they just sucked in the Terraform and, huh, there was it, solved the problem in automate, you know, took from the existing stuff, sucked in the Terraform, and then turned it into an automated solution. Interesting story. All right, let's get to the news. VMware has announced its intent to acquire Mesh 7. Mesh 7 makes API security gateways for microservices. Uh, Mesh 7's API gateway integrates with the Envoy proxy, which you've probably heard of. It's popular with the container orchestration platform Kubernetes. VMware also uses Envoy in its Tanzu service mesh. And now with Mesh 7, it can provide you API gateway security. Yeah, so this is continuing in the thread of VMware's NSX business unit becoming more than a networking company. It's also becoming a security company. We've seen it acquire various um, intrusion detection, threat management systems, uh, threat intelligence feeds. Yep. And there's kind of a gap here around API security. And API security is a bit weird. It's usually related to service mesh. And that's where uh, I'll try and explain the business case as best I can. But companies that provide services to customers who used to use a call center are increasingly using an API. So instead of having a third party call in, they might use an app that just consumes an API. And the classic example is uh, Stripe, who is a payment services. Mm -hmm. And they recently enabled a banking system by API. Mm -hmm. So you can now use Stripe as a backend banking platform, mm -hmm. but they only offer it via an API. There's no you know, passbooks or credit cards or anything like that. And this allows other companies to use their banking license and their banking service. And if you're a company delivering that sort of most likely an information service, you want to add security to that API. Now, that's not just a firewall. That's something beyond that. Is that sort of what you got? I mean, my take is that particularly in the microservices design, you've got services and applications calling on dozens or hundreds of other services and applications scattered all over the place, all over cloud infrastructure. And so one, you want to have visibility into what are my services connecting to and talking to, and two, should I allow them to? So this lets you to put one, that uh, visibility layer, and then two, you can build policy around what services and apps should be able to talk to other services and apps. Yeah, it's that. that and that's the thing is like VMware is taking networking it as, as not as forwarding packets, but as application services or network functions virtualization. Much, uh, it, it's not competing with networking vendors. It doesn't want to fiddle around with switches or any of that sort of stuff or have physical files. It wants to do it all in the overlay, which is true to its nature, I guess. But it also, it's it's actually doing real networking. You just don't, it's not obvious, I think. Part of it is this, you know, in a microservices architecture, there may be a lot of east-west traffic happening that wouldn't go out to some kind of, you know, centralized security system like a firewall or some other load yeah. balancer. Yeah, it's yeah. all happening inside all these virtual elements. And so you need to put more controls. This is the whole point of the Envoy proxy. You need to be able to plug things in at the container yep. level to do those controls. And if you're doing, you know, this this week's fashionable word, DevSecOps, <laughs> you want, you know, developer security operations, you want to instantiate the firewall in your container, in your service mesh using an API call. So if you're doing this sort of modern service-oriented, you know, microservices architecture where everything lives in a container or in an overlay, mm -hmm. you actually want 
the security functions to be deployed as part of you know deploying your app whatever your build you know continuous integration continuous development cycle looks like and that's what this product does and so VMware is trying to reach developers. Like a lot of companies are trying to reach developers. Right. Cisco did it by acquiring an analytics and telemetry company. Uh, it bought two-factor authentication. And the idea is, is that other companies will come along and drag Cisco products into solutions. And they become incredibly sticky when the developers are using them. Yes. And NSX has come along and saying, well, if you're doing, you know, if you're already using our Tanzu platform to write code, just use our security functions. Of course, there'll be a license and a cost associated with that, but, you know, and that is an attractive option. So uh, the uh, website for this company talks about no code injection or code changes are required to secure applications. And a lot of DevSecOps requires you to write code to call their functions. Mm-hmm. And the second part I noticed about this is that they're also talking about compliance risk and by mapping data flows. So what they're actually doing is in the service mesh, they're mapping data flows. Mm-hmm. So you can then do a compliance audit. Is this data insecured? Where's it going? Who's right. accessing it? Yep. So there's that. And then the second part was they're doing what we used to call data loss prevention, which was basically tracking the, the data that moves that leaves your network. Right. They call it data leak detection. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess we've got to move with the times. But uh, yeah, but data leak detection is a key thing. You know, if... For example, you have uh, credit card numbers. What you don't want is the credit card numbers to go out of the API. They should right. only come in, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so if all of a sudden you see a certain type of data format exiting your API, then it's a breach, most right. likely, and you want to take action. So a lot of these functions are in firewalls, but the firewalls, you don't want them at a remove from the app for sometimes, right? You don't actually want to have... Um, especially if you're cloud native. So if you're deploying into something like AWS or Google Cloud, having to instantiate a VM to deploy an application firewall is not um, practical sometimes. It's not very efficient in terms of speed to market and speed of business. You're actually putting um, uh, strategic road bumps in the development cycle. Right. So, you know, this is one way of getting around that problem. Creates other problems, of course, but, you know. Yeah, I think it's also part and parcel of VMware's efforts to maintain relevance uh, in an era where we're moving away from the VM sort of as the de facto deployment module and moving into containers and cloud native. And so this gives them a way to say, look, we still have value to you with our Tanzu service mesh, adopt that, you'll get security visibility, that kind of thing. But we should note that competitors include things like Nginx and Kong. So VMware's not the only one out there with a API security gateway. Yeah, but because it's part of NSX and VMware and ESX and Tanzu, you actually get the infrastructure team can maintain strategic oversight. So you can actually make a case that the developers could go off and do their DevSecOps in an uncontrolled, unregulated fashion to do what they want and hone responsibility for their security. But there's an external check or an external balance. In security, you always talk about you want two different teams. That's why security quite often sets the policy and network does the enforcement. And that is because you want somebody to set the policy and act as an audit, and then somebody else actually executes and monitors. So if there's a breach, it would require two independent teams to collaborate. and that's exactly to, VMware's strategy with uh, the Tanzu service mesh. Let your developers do whatever they're going to do because we'll speak all that cloud-native stuff. We'll interact with Kubernetes and whatever else you want. But we give your infrastructure team controls that they can put in place that will align with your whole developer community. And this is the gap in a lot of SDN tools today that they're rapidly moving to address is this idea that if I do something out in the service mesh or in the Kubernetes or in the cloud, 
where's the check and balance here? Where's the structural controls where I can monitor what's going on and if needs be, intervene. Um, or if I need to do an audit, I shouldn't have to go and trawl through the code to do that audit. I should be able to look at it from an infrastructural point of view, not by reading 5,000 lines of some <laughs> arcane Rust code or Go, right. if you know, yeah. <laughs> yes. And a CICD pipeline, et cetera, et cetera, that requires somebody with three months of coding experience to debug. So. All right, so the uptake is, yeah, VMware uh, reaffirming its commitment to security at the container and uh, orchestration level. Um, they didn't say how much they're buying Mesh 7 for, so I assume it's, you know, VMware couch cushion money. Um, <laughs> yeah, if they don't say that, usually. I'll look for it in the, in the financial announcements, but I suspect it's not significant. Yeah, not material. All right, moving on, uh, and sort of in the same vein, there's a company called Tala Security. They've released a product called Tala Detect. They monitor third-party website integrations for things like aggressive data collection practices and potential security vulnerabilities. So you probably know that most modern web applications, when they run in the browser, are actually stitching together dozens of third-party things like ad delivery, chat apps, image loaders, credit card processing services that the actual website owner, like say an airline, didn't actually write. They're just licensing or using these third-party services. So Teledetect says there could be privacy violations going on in the back end with these third-party services collecting more info than they should, or uh, like a chatbot service that gets compromised. You don't want that running on your site. They say they can uh, use a um, synthetic transaction to probe your site see what's going on, give you a list of what's happening, and then allow you to create policies and pri privacy policies and security policies and make sure they aren't being violated. Yeah, it's weird. Everybody stands around and says, we want developers to be able to, you know, do whatever they need and to develop at speed and have, you know, do their security automated testing and all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden there's an entire business monitoring what developers are doing and what they <laughs> like, <laughs> And that's what this is, right? It's fundamentally... Looking at your modern web app, so for you, and if you just import various modules and pieces of code or you start using SaaS services to deploy a ticker, you know, that sort of stuff, this actually goes and monitors all these tools that you said you wanted your developers to be able to use to move faster. Right. And uh, so what it tries to do is analyze these and then say, oh, you're the web service that you're, you know, and the third party that you're doing is harvesting all this data. Uh, so, for example, the class, the most relevant example I can think of is that T-Mobile in the USA just announced that all of their customers are now opted in to a data sharing system uh -huh. where T-Mobile now sells your personal information and your browsing habits <laughs> to ad brokers or to data, data harvesting organizations. Uh -huh. uh, and it's not, you, you know, you have to opt out. You are opted in by default. And this is kind of in that same vein. So this is trying to protect companies from... Uh, apps taking liberties, like making right, changes right. in their terms of service and so forth. And all of a sudden, a bit like Google Mail, like, you know, if you're using Google Mail, it reads every one of your emails. Right. And Google only keeps that data for three months, but it only needs to. Mm -hmm. Because every three months, it knows everything that you're interested in in the last three months. And that's enough to know what you're doing. Did you want that? You know, if you're a company, that's your value knowing what you do and what your business is about is a thing. So it's strange how uh, the business model that everybody gets excited about, speed of business, is actually a threat as well as a positive. It's a potential danger, yeah. And I particularly think uh, a product like this, and there are others out there, uh, will get traction in Europe where GDPR regulations are pretty strict about what websites can do uh, and know about you. So if you're a business and you're using third-party partners to do a lot of stuff, then you need to make sure you're still meeting your privacy and compliance requirements. And that's what a solution like this is meant to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's the, it's the reaction, you know, that 
whatever we do, there's a there's a reaction. The wrong <laughs> there way. always is. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and letting your developers do whatever they need to do to get the app done has consistently proven out in the thirty odd years that I've been in the in the market to be a bad idea. And so, guess what we've got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more attention. All right, uh, moving on. There's a Gartner blog that calls the open source Sonic Network OS a disruptor and predicts that within the next four years, 40% of large data center networks will run Sonic in production, and Gartner qualifies large data centers as those with 200 or more switches. So Gartner bullish on Sonic. Yeah, well, congratulations to them for catching up, really. I think we've been saying that for, what, six months? <laughs> sure, there's a, there's a pat on the back. Yeah, because here on on the network break, we've been saying that Sonic is emerging, it's getting support. And if you've been listening to our podcasts over on Heavy Networking, you might have noticed a number of vendors leaning more and more heavily into Sonic and coming forward with a pitch. Now, I will say that some of them have been a little bit tentative. They've sort of been putting the idea out there, I felt to gauge customer reaction. So they weren't sort of like, ha, huh, let's throw hundreds of millions of dollars at Sonic. Let's, you know, let's mm -hmm. tentatively walk away. And yet we've seen other companies like Appstra, for example, go all in with Sonic and say, although we're multi-vendor, we would recommend for most customers that using Sonic in the switching plane would be a very smart thing to do. Right. So now, of course, Appstra has moved over to Juniper and, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the evolution looks like there, whether they'll stay multi-vendor or, you know, focus on a narrower set of top of, of vendors over time. But I I think, yeah, this is I think this is already done and Gartner's kind of catching up with where the market's already moved to. Now, that is for people like you and I, Drew, who track this stuff and we're sort of trying to watch whether whether forward wave of the market is going to. Right. People down on the ground are still very much uh, you know, CLI configuration, configuring EVPNs manually and that sort of stuff. But, you know, what we will see is eventually most networking devices will be Sonic operated by some sort of software. And I think 40% in five years, is that what he said? 40%, uh, yeah, within the next uh, four mm. years, yep. But there is a flip side here. There are other factors that are driving it here, and that is not, not that Sonic is free, but it's the ASIC makers, I think, Drew, that... They want to get control of the market. They want to take control away from the networking ODMs and try and get their products in front of customers. How do you mean? You know how Intel has its branding all over PCs. Mm -hmm. So you might go and buy a HP or a Dell computer, but it's always got, and you're always thinking about it in terms of the CPU, which is bonkers. That's like buying a car because it's got an engine in, you know, because of the engine that's inside of it. Mm -hmm. People don't buy cars because it's got, you know, a Hyundai motor or a, a BMW motor inside it. They buy it because it's a car, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But but if you're an ASIC maker, the question is how much of the device value do you get? Do you get a small percentage because you made the ASIC, or can you get a bigger percentage? And what they what I think is we're seeing at the moment is this idea that the ASIC makers feel like they're in a position of control or position of power, particularly Broadcom, um, and they see Sonic as a way to say, well, why don't we make a version of Sonic and then drive that into the market. For certain customers, we can actually give them a Sonic version that's integrated with our switches. We can go to the manufacturers who the manufacturers quite often don't care about. They just want to make stuff and then ship yeah. it out the door. Yeah. I think the interesting part about this is that the ASIC makers can say to certain, the larger customers, let's say there's a top 100 data center buyers in the world, not just the, forget Google and AWS who are making their own operating systems and all that sort of stuff. If you break it down and say, okay, I want to um, 
capture more of that revenue, then maybe I get a version of Sonic and say, well, here's a Sonic, here's a device, it uses my ASIC, I guarantee this Sonic to some level, just go and buy it from any one of these people who make these things, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and away we go. And last week we talked about uh, Cisco's Silicon One ASICs, yep. Yep. and I think that Silicon One is a, is a, you know, a very intelligent move in hindsight, to owning control of the silicon. They don't want to be beholden to Broadcom or to Marvel or Intel. For silicon, they want to be able to control of their destiny. And even if they choose that silicon, they want to have be in a position of uh, purchasing power where their negotiations can be brought up on, on terms that they have. I can see where somebody like Broadcom might see an opportunity to get a bigger piece of the pie because an essential component of uh, Sonic isn't just the network OS, it's also the switch abstraction interface underneath that, which is essentially what that this software shim that makes sure it can connect, talk to the ASIC. And that's the part that the ASIC manufacturer typically draws and Broadcom can license that SI mm. um, and maybe say, if you want it to, to get Sonic to run with us, you need to use this SI and we're going to license it and maybe sell it to you for a little bit yeah. extra. And so that, that gives them a little bit more control. And that SI is important because that's a blob, that's proprietary. Right. So even though they're using open source Sonic, the blob that's in the middle is proprietary and licensed, as we found with Cumulus Linux when right. Broadcom revoked their license to use the side. Then all of a sudden, Cumulus was locked out of the Broadcom ecosystem. Right. So we know that Broadcom is willing to be aggressive in its pursuit of this control of the market. Uh, I guess the question is going to be, what do the ODM vendors do to compete with that? And I think the the flip side here is there's two other factors that struck me this over the last two weeks. One is the shortage of silicon capacity. So mm-hmm. we have seen problems where the production of silicon is being stressed, partly to do with COVID, partly to do with changes in the supply chain. Obviously, the China-US tensions uh, are sort of changing the demand for silicon. Uh, some of the factories are being shut down. Uh, companies aren't making suitable investments in building new fabs because <laughs> there's a lot of money. It's a lot of risk to make those. Mm-hmm. And so that puts the the ASIC makers back in control in a way um, because they are in a situation where they can, um, once there's a queue, a backlog of orders, and if your business, let's say you're a network vendor and you're dependent on ASIC supply to make switches to sell to customers, and your position in the queue is dependent by how your relationship is with the supplier, right? <laughs> That's some leverage there, yes. <laughs> so there is a leverage here, and they can use that opportunity. I mean, the the silicon shortage is real. If it wasn't, then there'd be a different power play. And I think the the other part about this is actually what the switch matters less and less. The switch router matters much less going forward. Do we really care about the operating system on the device if most of the value and most of the functionality that we want is either in the software-defined operations over the top right, or, more likely, moving to the smart NIC and to the server at the edge. Yeah, that's some long-term thinking where the value actually moves up from the switch to some kind of automation and orchestration system, like an Abstra or a NUDA or a Glueware, et cetera, or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, we've talked before about smart NICs, and we've had some interviews on the podcast. You know, we've done heavy networking podcasts on smart NICs where uh, they're actually talking about running Sonic in the SmartNIC itself. So you're running the same software. uh, Dell's talking about using Sonic in the SmartNIC and potentially on their networking devices. So now you've got a consistent operating system right the way across the fabric. 
Right, Dell's already actually released its own Sonic distro, and then it's going to also run a version of Sonic on SmartNIC, so that can give you some control from the server all the way to the top of rack switch. Yeah, that's the idea. Right. Now, if I'm Dell, that gives me the ability to say, well, I'm now creating products that are compatible with Sonic, aka Windows. You supply me whatever hardware that goes underneath. If yeah. that's Broadcom or if that's Anovium or if you know or whoever, Dell's value is in the Sonic at on the overlay. And, right. and I think Dell's Dell's got a different game to play though. That that say compared to somebody like Extreme Networks or Juniper or what Cisco's got to do. You know, so right. it's going to be interesting to see how this tussle pans out. I think the Sonic, you know. Coming back to the original part, Garten is not saying anything that's not well known here. I think all the sonic uptake is happening in the hyperscalers and the sort of tier two cloud and service provider telco markets. I don't know that it's hit the enterprise all that much, and I'm curious to see if it starts to make it into the enterprise. Um, So we'll see how well Gartner's bet pays off. Also, how many enterprises are there running 200 switch data centers? So well, it's pretty caveated, right? So 40 percent of large data center networks. What's large? Yeah, 200 switches or more is what they say is large. So Okay, right. So 200 caveat. switches or more is very large. There's probably only a handful of customers at that sort of size these days. So, yeah. As and a broader... will they run all Sonic or just some? Right, right. If they've got <laughs> Sonic know? in a little yeah. rack over here as a test bed, you know, maybe yeah, running one yeah. application. Or maybe you've got a couple of racks of uh, HCI over here that you bought in or you ran a project that ran. Oh, okay, yeah. Right, yeah. So Sonic isn't going to take over the world yet, but it's, I think, good for the whole industry to see an open source project starting to expand and become more viable in the broader market. I just think having a consistent operating system in the same way that Linux, like even if it looks like Linux with various distributions, at least it's Linux right? at its core, right? And yes, there are definite differences between Red Hat and Ubuntu and SUSE, but conceptually it's all mostly the same. There's definite value in that, I think. And all of the tool chains and um, you know skill sets you've developed around Linux will translate to those different distros. And that's the idea with Sonic as well. Different distros will emerge, but mm. it, it is essentially Linux underneath. But if you're a network vendor with a brand name and an operating system that you've been developing for a couple of decades, and you extract the bulk of your revenue from selling hardware as yes. a monolithic bundle, you know, you've got to face some hard choices. Do you continue down with your strategy of building your own operating system and adding features and value uh, while you're being chased down by Linux? You know, the Linux, you know, it's like Windows and Linux. And eventually Windows lost, right? Linux chased it down and chased it down. But Microsoft Windows made a lot of money. Windows Server made a lot of money on the way. So maybe you do. Yeah, I think that the traditional vendors, the Junipers, the Cisco's, the Aristas are holding Sonic at arm's length. They'll embrace it as much as they need to to service the very largest customers who can abandon it. But they'd like to hold it off with their enterprise customers as long as they can until they have a strategy for something to do with it, which I think would be building um, a management and automation system on top of that that doesn't really care about what the underlying NOS is. Mm, For sure, yeah. All right, a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Path Solutions. If you knew everything your network equipment knew, do you think you could run a better network? Path Solutions built TotalView to make it easy to root cause troubleshoot network problems that other monitoring systems aren't even aware of. TotalView automatically monitors all devices and interfaces in your entire infrastructure. Your management and users hold you to be responsible for the entire network shouldn't you have the visibility to match. 
It goes deep, collects performance, configuration, 19 different error counters, QoS, and other statistics to give it a depth of understanding. This information is then sent through a heuristics engine to produce plain English answers of what's broken. This means your time is spent improving the network's operation because you know everything that your network equipment knows. The core offering includes all the features needed to run a healthy network. That's NetFlow, path mapping, diagramming, IPAM, network configuration, automation, server monitoring, and more. Their solution, their slogan is, don't turtle your network. Schedule a technical overview meeting and mention Packet Pushers and you'll get a turtle plushie. Visit pathsolutions.com today to learn more about how to get total network visibility in your network today. That's pathsolutions.com. Mention Packet Pushers to get that turtle plushie. All right, back to the news. In an act of utter common sense, Cisco has announced it will not have an in-person presence at the Mobile World Conference in Barcelona this June, citing concerns over, surprise, surprise, the global pandemic. <laughs> uh, did I not? Did we not predict this, Drew? I think we talked about this and, and laughed, scoffed loudly. We did. At MWC, uh, that they even remotely figured that people would fly to Barcelona. Um, so not only Cisco pulling out, but just about all the major vendors have announced that they uh, they won't be attending as well. Yeah, Ericsson and Nokia also were supposed to have a live presence, and they've pulled out and said they're only going to attend virtually. <laughs> I mean, again, the whole challenge here, of course, is that you would have to sit on an international flight for many hours to reach Barcelona. Barcelona is a lovely place, and who wouldn't want to go there? Sure, and uh, have a have a a conference there and have a good time on the company's money, uh, which is basically every conference ever. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's a very successful model, but not during a pandemic. That's right. Uh, but unless you can have a vaccination, but even so, vaccination doesn't prevent COVID. It gives you a substantially increased resistance. You are flying. Um, keep in mind, too, that for US companies in particular, though their healthcare programs are often self-funded. So if an employee gets sick while traveling on, on the company's dime, the company's actually on the hook for the costs. Yeah. And that could potentially be substantial in the way that the US employment cycle works. So mm -hmm. I would imagine that most employees would have been flagging I'm not comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. I'll bet there's some that are, for sure. You know, it's tough because everybody's desperate to get out of the house and go somewhere and do something. And things, at least in the U.S., are proceeding very well in terms of vaccine rollout. And by June, it's probably going to be pretty good. But still, mm -hmm. just where we are now and the potential risks, uh, particularly with international travel, there may be complications about you know, proving your vaccine status, that kind of thing. And just the whole idea of getting on a plane for hours and sitting in a giant conference room with thousands of other people milling around, it, it just really doesn't make sense. Uh, and yes, June's still mm. a few months out and things could change, but I think they made the risk calculation and came down on the right side. Yeah, I do think, however, MWC is making uh, decisions here that are probably financially motivated. I'm sure, yes. Yeah, my sense of this is that they have agreements with companies that signed three to five year uh, attendance mm -hmm. agreements. And as long as the conference goes ahead, then that money gets collected. I, w I would bet that nobody's talking about it, but I'm pretty confident there'd be something like that in the back. It's possible. Although, I mean, I think a lot of live events are hurting financially. They've had to let staff go, revenues yeah. are down. And so they are eager to get the machine moving again. And that's understandable, but it's just a bad look during a global pandemic where millions of people have died. Yeah, no, I think this is much more of a, a business financial decision. Yep. Uh, yep. You know, companies will have signed three-year agreements guaranteeing their attendance to get a better price three years mm -hmm. ago, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And the agreement will be as long as the conference is running and happening, you have to pay at least. Uh, I see. Okay. So they've, yep. they're trying to exercise a clause here or something. Yes. And I also suspect that MWC would have signed 
agreements with venues to guarantee payments. Mm-hmm. So if the venue is paid for and the cust- and the clients are on the hook for at least some money, then you run the event anyway, and then you get to say, um, well, I was going to pay for the venue anyway, so I just do whatever. And right. then I get to invoice the customers for something, and then I get to survive for another year. I, I feel that is a viable story. Not that I've got any proof any way or the other, but that feels right to me. And if I was the CEO of MWC, I would announce that the event is going ahead, trigger all the clauses where payments are required, and you know, deal with the fallout. Because I wonder if, because if you're doing that now, you're not going to be popular when the venue comes back, like when <laughs> the pandemic's over, right? <laughs> you are not. <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's the thing. Maybe it, Maybe they're making a choice to say, well, we'll deal with those consequences. Or maybe they're saying is, we're just going to take it and, uh, you know, the event's not coming back anyway, so we'll take what we can. That's an interesting take. And there could be a lot mm-hmm. of conversations with lawyers about force majeure and clauses like this and what's happening. But yeah, we're not privy to that. So yeah, that's an interesting yeah, yeah. take. And no one's going to talk about it. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. In any case, uh, links in the show notes if you want to find out more for yourself. We'll move on. Google has promised to spend $7 billion on real estate in the United States that will build out existing data centers and offices and also put down new footprints in new territories. It's pledging to create 10,000 new jobs this year. This is all from a blog post by Google CEO Sundar Pichai. Yeah, these are, this idea that there's goodwill is actually a lie. <laughs> these are business decisions. Yes. These are investments, right? Yes. They're not, it's not a charitable donation of $7 billion. This is, we are investing $7 billion to make money out of mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. right? This is, mm-hmm. I expect to spend $7 billion to make $20 billion over a time cycle. So I don't understand why these people who write these articles go like, oh, they're investing in you know goodwill and creating goodwill and blah, blah, blah. They're not. It's a straight up business decision. Why? I don't get it. Well, if you read uh, Sundar Pichai's blog, sort of the the undertone is Google is a huge economic engine for this country. We create jobs. We also help businesses do what they do. So, hey, and hey, U.S. government, we're spending lots of money in lots of different different congressional districts. So please go lightly when you think about regulating us. That's the the sub-message I took from this uh, announcement. Mm, They'd be better off spending it on political lobbying than $7 billion on real estate. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're doing the lobbying too, but the real estate I think doesn't hurt because that starts to get you constituents who will advocate for you as well besides your own lobbyists. Yeah, I guess that's the, you know, this idea that they're going to open offices in also plays into the distributed work idea that you know, the idea that workers will move away either move away from Silicon Valley and or they can access lower cost employees at these new locations. Yeah, so they're going to open new offices, they say, in Houston, which is in Texas, Seattle, Washington, and Mississippi. They've already got offices in places like Pittsburgh, uh, Atlanta, New York, Chicago. So outside of Silicon Valley, they want to have a larger presence. I think, one, yeah, to attract talent that they may not be getting by just wanting people in the Bay Area. And two, this notion of distributed work where folks are going to want to be able to have more options for work. And so having more offices lets you get more talent and also accommodate people who are wanting to more flexible work approach. Yeah, this doesn't feel like a charitable thing. This time feels like worker exploitation, paying less for workers by getting them in regional areas. Uh, at the same time, they get a double dividend by getting politicians by saying, hey, we're coming to your town, city, state, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not charity. They're making money by spending money. So, Yeah, yeah definitely not charity. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Google, you know, making it sound like they love America, but it's a business and they're going to do their business. Yeah, there's no... It's not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right, our last story for the day, and this is at the intersection of politics and technology. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission is preparing to rescind the licenses of three Chinese telecom companies that operate in the U.S. That's China Telecom, China Unicom, and Comnet. China Telecom, in fact, has been operating in the U.S. for almost 20 years, but because they are essentially, according to the FCC, owned and controlled by the Chinese government, the FCC has asked them uh, asked them last year to demonstrate that they were independent of political influence from the Chinese government. The FCC says they have not demonstrated that to the FCC's satisfaction, so they are beginning the process to revoke these licenses. Well, this makes sense against a background of U.S.-Chinese politics. And we talked before about how the political situation will impact the technical situation. So if you're currently using any of these organizations for bandwidth, and possibly you are, um, those agreements will have to be unwound and changed. And I think we'll continue to see more impacts from the political situation into the tech industry. And I think that's really the story here. Yeah, I think it's a signal that the new administration is going to sort of carry along the hard line set up by the previous administration. And there were questions about how the Biden administration might approach China. And now it seems pretty clear, at least on the technical front, they're sort of continuing on with the policy direction of the previous administration. Well, at the end of the day, uh, none of the US telcos are working in China. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is a reasonable political statement to say, if you're not willing to trade with us, you know, let us participate and compete in your economy, then you don't get to compete in ours. That is viable geopolitics. And I think the surprising part here is probably that it's taken this long, but political, you know, bureaucracies take a long time to move. So there you go. There we are. Yep. Links in the show notes, including the official FCC document, if you want to check it out for yourself. Uh, that wraps up the news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored TechBytes conversation with Glueware on how our customers using Glueware and Terraform to automate the deployment of cloud infrastructure. Today on the TechBytes podcast, sponsored by Glueware, we discuss automating cloud networks. Our guest is Mike Howe, VP of Product Marketing at Glueware, and Mike is going to walk us through how a customer is using Glueware and Terraform to stand up infrastructure in AWS. Mike, welcome to the podcast. And just to get folks familiar with Glueware, can you give us a quick overview of the company and what it does? Sure. Thanks, uh, Drew and Greg. Great to be here with you guys today. We've been on the show before, so hopefully people are familiar. If not, Glueware is an intelligent network automation platform that is built to automate multi-vendor and multi-domain networks through intelligent intent-based declarative automation. We automate brownfield and greenfield. We're built for network engineers, so you don't have to go and learn programming. And we've onboarded over 30 operating systems, providing a suite of applications to do things like automated network discovery and config drift and audit, configuration management, workflow automation, and much more. So that's uh, that's kind of the basics on Glueware. All right. So you were... Working with a customer, you had a customer engagement to do their on-premises resources, their data center, but at the last minute, they wanted to test you out in the cloud. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, we're working with a customer from last year, and it was an ongoing evaluation for a pretty big expansion of the use of Glueware to automate their network. And in our December announcement, we uh, when we announced Glueware 4.0, part of that announcement was announcing the onboarding of Terraform as a vendor adapter and the ability to automate cloud. So as a customer picked up this announcement, they said, hey, Glueware, we'd love to see if you can meet our requirements because we're going pretty full bore into the the cloud domain. And um, we'd like to see if you can help. Okay, my understanding is they were essentially running a proof of concept, building out pods in AWS, uh, and there were a lot of clicks. They had to do a lot of manual work and they wanted to bring more automation to that. Yeah, as you know, you, you find when you, you dive into a proof of concept with a customer and you're helping them, you get into the details. And it, it wasn't like a simple, hey, Glueware, we want to see you spin up a VPC and something basic. They actually came to us and said, look, we have a new team on this. 
We're deploying, we have a goal to deploy data center in the cloud. At, you know, it's kind of a new concept for this organization, and they want to really formalize how they deliver cloud for internal consumption, internal app development as they move workloads. And so they had this pod design that they're spinning up in AWS, and it was complicated. You know, it was multiple VPCs. It uh, the heart of it was a, a transit gateway, which adds complexity. You had internet gateway, you had you know multiple EC2 instances and security groups. And as you you know can imagine, without visualizing it here, it was a pretty in-depth pod. These pod architectures are really a way of building a structure or a consistency around application deployments. You build a pod, and in each pod is a DNS and on authentication and security firewalls and so forth. And the idea is, is that instead of having an app and then sharing it all, each pod has its own, is like a mini data center in a way, you know, it's, and, and so if you want to do something with that app and you change the firewall, you're only changing the firewall for that app. And the challenge of course is, well, that's great because now everything's nice and segmented and isolated, but now you've your, your requirements for setting up a pod and even worse, maintaining a pod are phenomenal because you might, if you've got 20 apps, you've got 20 pods and you've got 20 firewalls, 20 DNS servers, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly, Greg. And, you know, as you look at it, as a network engineer, you know, historically, and a lot of folks on this line are network engineers and not cloud developers and things, I think the beauty of the pod design is the transit gateway because it starts to bring order to networking and really the network connectivity of the VPCs, the connectivity in this case of their direct connect gateways, how how the VPN connects in. And so uh, what I liked about the, the pod design is it really does bring structure in order, and it aligns with hmm. other corporate requirements like compliance. Like you mentioned, you can have firewall yeah. load balancing. You're bringing all the network constructs, but you're defining it as it exists in the cloud. By making it a standard design, the so-called pod, they have it repeatable. So they can spin more of these up. They can, you know, it's a nice reusable so where, design. So where's the Terraform come in then? So the Terraform is what people are using to configure the cloud and then Glueware drives the Terraform? Yeah, that's a great question. So. When when they showed us this pod and they actually you know showed it to us a little bit you know through PowerPoint and a little bit through Amazon Web Services, when if you were to build this pod in the through the AWS portal through AWS, you really have two main options like directly through them. There's more than two, but the two main ones are you you log into the portal and you go build the constructs. When yeah. you're first building, that's how you do it. And trust me, it is a lot of clicks. And those of you who have done it, <laughs> gone up on VPCs and security groups and EC2 instances. It's a lot of clicks. So we're talking probably thousands of clicks, ultimately, when you look at this pod design. Where Terraform comes into play is Terraform has a, a very elegant design. And in fact, the Terraform approach uh, with, uh, they kind of consider, you know, if you consider the, the Terraform platform as a generic infrastructure as code platform. Right. They have this concept of a Terraform engine. The Terraform engine kind of normalizes things into their constructs. Then they have a provider adapter that speaks native to that whatever provider. In this case, it's an Amazon Web Services provider. And they've essentially built a mapping to a Terraform resources that they've broke it down into the current AWS plugin is like 644 resources, 222 yeah. data sources. So it's it becomes these kind of abstracted Terraform constructs yeah. that you use. It gets really messy really quickly because you've just got so many moving pieces going on here. But I think question. the challenge here was that 
they had done a lot of this work already and then Gluer had to come along and work on top of it? Is that right? Well, kind of. You know, if you look at, and, and this is, uh, I would say, also one of the challenges with Terraform, with their design, what they've done was spin up one of these pods. And, mm. you know, the, the issue is, is that kind of, if you were then going to try to automate that ongoing, you're kind of automating a kind of a brownfield cloud. And to be honest with you, Terraform is not great at that. Terraform is not great at taking something that's already deployed and automating it. But what you yeah. normally do is you take a design you've done in the cloud, like, like this pod design, then you apply automation to it at, to make it repeatable, not, not necessarily automate that instance, but you want to take what you've done and then make that re a repeatable design. So that initial instance is really for proof of concept. In AWS, you have, the, you have the option of automating through cloud formation, but it's similar. You'd go off and learn, you'd learn JSON and YAML, and you would learn how to build it through their, their native thing. The beauty of Terraform is once you learn or adopt the Terraform approach, the same approach can apply to different clouds. And this particular customer is AWS today. It's Azure in the near future, and they see themselves going to Google. So when they looked at a, an automation solution, they liked the fact that Glueware was leveraging Terraform because it does provide a model that is adaptable to other clouds. So can you help me understand then what Glueware is bringing to the party if Terraform's already got sort of the basic template and kicks off a lot of that infrastructure automation? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question, Drew, as well, because, you know, with Terraform, what Terraform is really good at is if you have your everything defined in that file, you push it to the engine and the engine spins up the instance. What Terraform is really difficult, especially for like, you know, network engineering types, is that if you've ever looked at consuming Terraform, it, it looks like a developer tool set. It, you got to download pieces from GitHub. You got to get you, you got to spin up containerization. You got to install the engine and the provider. You got to work in HashiCorp's config language, HCL. So it really feels like a developer-centric language. When you look at what Glueware did, we were able to take the HashiCorp config modeling language and map it right into our config management approach, which is which is a config modeling, and we're able to actually wrap you know, abstraction and order and reusability and make it look more like, you know, break it down into concepts that network engineers know, like here are your route maps and here's your security group and really de deconstruct it, make it consumable where you're not having to spin up an editor like Visual Studio or Notepad++ and edit raw HashiCorp config language. So we add a lot of intelligence and abstraction around the config. So the notion is that I, the network engineer, would come into the Glueware console to do my part of this infrastructure with all the networking pieces, maybe some security compliance stuff. And through Glueware, it pushes it into a, a format that Terraform understands, which then goes into the cloud and does its stuff to set up that infrastructure? That's exactly right. We ultimately render the Terraform file. We send it to the underlying engine that's onboarded as part of the Glueware platform. And then when, when you're actually provisioning, we're instantiating that Terraform engine to spin up that infrastructure. Now, again, the beauty of it, too, is that if customers are already using Glueware for their on-prem networking, the, 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 the look and the feel is, and the, is approach is the same. The way you manage your network infrastructure, you know, Cisco routers and Palo Alto firewalls or whatever it may be, is the same through Glueware. So it kind of unifies the approach. And that actually ties into another piece of this story with this particular customer as we kind of progress the conversation. And is that about uh, doing iOS because they're running Cisco virtual routers in the cloud? It, exactly, Drew. So part of their pod design, and, 
And I'll just comment to say that, you know, this customer, like probably a lot, the way in which you network to the cloud and in the cloud is kind of always changing. You maybe your VPN today, then you go direct connect, then you're a mix of direct connect and VPN. One of the requirements they have now, and it's an evolving, again, an evolving design, but one of the EC2 instances they spin up in the pod is actually a Cisco iOS router that they configure, configure DMVPN for. So a form of VPN mm. to enable branch sites to connect directly into cloud resources. So as we spun up, as we work with them in this pod and we onboarded it, we spun up the instance through Terraform. And we, as part of that instance, you're spinning up a Cisco iOS router that sits inside the VPC. Well, what Gluer is also able to do we dusted off something that we did way back in fall of 18 around an ONUG POC, which was automating AWS natively, yeah. which is we're able to make native API calls to AWS to say, hey, what is the what is the uh, public IP assigned to that router? We're able to load that into the system, and then we talk native iOS to the router and configure it. So that one of the downfalls of Terraform and other uh, automation constructs for cloud is you spin up the cloud instance, but if it's not a native construct, if you're using a Cisco or a Palo Alto yeah. or an F5. If you're not using the proprietary cloud products or yeah. the proprietary cloud. Like the thing that so many people forget is that AWS, Google, Azure, they're proprietary. So you can use Terraform to orchestrate AWS functions. But as soon as you stop doing AWS functions, Terraform kind of the wheels fall off. In the nicest possible way, right? Yeah, it just stops, Greg. And then you need something else to do the rest. Cover that gap, right? Yeah. And and so then you need, and this is true for just about all the public clouds, unless you're 100% saying, I'm only going to use whatever it is that this uh, proprietary cloud, the proprietary tools of each cloud, they're fine tools. It's not a criticism of the tools, but they are proprietary. Then that's fine. But what you'll find is eventually that the cloud doesn't have a feature or function or product that you need and you need to do something. And then all of a sudden your orchestration chain or your automation chain breaks down. It's like literally a chain, isn't it? And the yeah. Terraform can do lots of great things, but it doesn't do everything. The other piece, Greg, that I think is a misconception is like Terraform's only for day one. What you're going to find, especially with, or day zero, kind of spin up the infrastructure. What you yeah. find, especially as this customer has moved to a transit gateway as being kind of the hub of who can talk to who, you can think of it like a connectivity matrix where you're defining routes that you know define ingress and egress rules. The ongoing automation will be actually changing and maintaining those rules. Right. And the more and more they, they are going to move away from, you know, let's say they're going to centralize on, on other options on how they connect. But in the day two, engineers will go in and they will be able to fine tune and add permissions and controls through the transit gateway. And so there is a, there is a notion of day two where you're still changing. And with Terraform, you change the whole TF file, but you're only updating, you know, let's say your transit gateway rules. Yeah. It is able to do declarative provisioning and then only push those changes into the instance. So you do actually do ongoing automation, leveraging Terraform still. But again, you yeah. do it through yeah. Blueware. So this is this idea that Terraform itself is a is a is a great product, limited to what the features of the cloud it has. So it's only able to cover the spectrum of the features in the public cloud. It's not can't do. It's it's expanding into the on-prem, but it's not there. What you're also alluding to is it's not an operational platform. It can't do ads, moves, and changes as so well. Yeah, or, but when you wrap Glueware around it, you really then begin to leverage it and operate it as a network engineer doing things you normally do on, on the network maintenance. 
you know, you're, you're changing ACLs, maybe you're changing, you know, a, a load balancer parameter, you're changing a security group. So you're doing that kind of day two maintenance to expand uh, as the application requirements so, change. So, so sometimes I think of Glueware as an automation engine and you provide a bunch of southbound integrations, like especially for Cisco routers and, right. you know, different brands of routers. And you've got, as you said, 30 different brands. That's right. But what you're actually doing here is saying Terraform is a, another southbound thing. And you're sort of adding yeah. just alongside of your Cisco functionality and your, you know, 29 other vendors. You're just saying, here's Terraform, treat it like another one. But in this case, this customer had the need to do all the things. And where it's such a great fit for Glueware is when we onboarded AWS natively, we built the adapter to speak native API to, to uh, Azure. Sorry, to we've done Azure as well, but to AWS. And it's mm. a custom API. It's XML over HTTPS. So we onboarded it. But as you can imagine, everything you do in AWS is an API call. So there's got to be hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of actual API calls. So you wouldn't really want to onboard the entire API library. In fact, it might be kind of impossible natively. However, by leveraging Terraform, you get the full power essentially of the AWS API and you're able to leverage that Terraform adapter. Then by leveraging Terraform, any provider that's published, and there's quite a few of them now, but in our case, we started with the, the major public clouds of, you know, of uh, AWS and Azure and yeah. Google to start, mm. but really any, any provider we can onboard into Glueware. So it really expands the, the capability of Glueware, and it saves us from having to do custom onboarding of every API library out there. So if I was just going to sum it up, to me, it sounds like the value is that I, as a network engineer, can use Glueware as sort of my abstraction layer to do to be use familiar constructs that can that sent that then get sent to Terraform, which then can Terraform becomes the abstraction layer for whatever public cloud my developers happen to be working with. And the other side of that is that I also get to maintain pace and velocity with the development house who are spinning up infrastructure in Terraform. Exactly. Without the learning curve of Terraform, without the building right. of your own system, because I get to do it the, all through Glueware. Yeah, you do it all through Glueware. Constructs. You have you have your API credentials in there, and it, you just sign in as a network user administrator, and you can administrate the cloud resources as easily as you do your networking today. Well, Mike, uh, we've run out of time, but if folks want to find out more about Glueware and all the integrations you do and all the automation and orchestration you can do for networking, where would they go? Yeah, Drew, they can go to Glueware.com, and we even have a special portal set up for packet pushers at Glueware.com slash packet dash pushers. You can have links to other episodes that we've done, as well as we're going to link some specific material around what we've discussed here with Terraform. Fantastic. All right. That's gluer.com slash packet dash pushers. Uh, that's the end of this podcast. Thank you, Mike, for joining us. And thanks to Glueware for being a sponsor. And as always, thank you for being a listener. You can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>